Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you along with space historian Robert Zimmerman. His website, of course, is called BehindTheBlack.com, linked up at CoastToCoastAM.com. Robert, let's talk a little bit about the moon, 52nd anniversary. Can't believe it. 52 years ago, we went to the moon. Uh, I would say that every single person that was involved with getting that to happen and every single person that watched it when it did happen, if you had asked any of them at that time that 52 years later no human had yet returned from those Apollo missions, they would have said, oh, gosh, that's absurd. Of course we're going to be back. We're going to be there regularly for the next half century. We'll have bases there. We'll have everything. Yeah, and that hasn't happened, and it's been a great disappointment. That, I thank God, is about to change. Uh, we will, with the next, I think, decade and a half, we will be returning to the moon in great numbers. It will be uh, a glorious competition between many private companies and many nations to put their footsteps on the moon. And of course, that's in preliminary work to get farther out into the solar system, to go to the asteroids, to go to Mars, to build space stations. And once again, it's not just simply a government uh, you know, planting a flag effort. It's going to be an effort of many people following their dreams and making money along the way. Of the three astronauts for Apollo 11, of course, just Buzz Aldrin is alive. He's 91 years old. And, uh, we tried to get him on tonight, but uh, he just was way too busy uh, to answer his phone. Yeah, I mean... But what a gutsy guy he is. All three of them were truly unique individuals. Um, Neil Armstrong is really interesting in that he was a guy who uh, trained as a pilot, test pilot in the military. And when he left the military, what did he end up doing? You know, you have many choices. You're out of the military. You get the GI Bill. You can do many things. You're a pilot. You know how to fly really sophisticated planes. You can make a good living, you know, doing any kind of commercial air work. What does he do? He decides he'll become a civilian test pilot. Now, let's do civilian flying for uh, uh, aviation companies that want to fly and test cutting-edge airplanes. So that's what he did for a living. He was not a military guy when he was chosen. He was a civilian test. And that's why they chose him. That's exactly right. And then you have Mike Collins, who I interviewed a number of times over the years in writing my histories. And uh, uh, you couldn't have met a more gracious, friendly, open person. And in fact, that openness from him uh, is reflected in the Air and Space Museum in Washington, because after the Apollo missions, he left NASA and he became the head of the Air and Space Museum. And he was the man, really, that made that museum uh, become the the diamond it really is as museums in Washington. Yeah, he died of cancer. And of course, Buzz Aldrin, you know, he's this guy so passionately wanted to be the first on the moon that he, they had to, like, chain him down almost on the flight. And that's because he, was, he wanted to do it. And he, was, he, he knew what he was doing, like all of them. Like every single astronaut on every single mission through the Apollo, through the 60s space race, the most remarkable stat of all is the fact that none of them ever made an error. It it was the human element that worked every single time. Now, sometimes little things went wrong. They always, including things they did, but they always fixed it. And this is an achievement that's beyond description. And Buzz Aldrin was part of that. Don't go up to Buzz and tell him to swear in a Bible and ask him if he went to the moon. (laughs) 
He'll, yeah. if, if you do that, he'll punch you in the face. He'll and he pop you. And he will. He'll you know, pop. He's right. <laughs> Let's talk about Mars for a moment, then we'll come back to the moon. But uh, it was quite an accomplishment over the 50 years to do what we did. But uh, how many rovers do we have operating on Mars right now? Right now, there are two rovers operating on Mars. I'm sorry, take, take that back. Three rovers operating on Mars. We have um, uh, the American Curiosity rover, which has working, been working now for, oh, what is it now, eight years? Years. Nine years. years. And it's, it's, if you go to my website, Behind the Black, and you just do a search for the word cool images, you, or better yet, Curiosity or Rover Update, you will see spectacular mountainous images because Curiosity has now moved into the mountains of Mars. And these are the first ground-level pictures we've ever had uh, on Mars uh, of mountains and foothills. And it's spectacular. I post them regularly because they're just, it's just breathtaking. Now, that's, that's, of course, the Curiosity. Then you have Perseverance, who's now been on Mars now for about... Uh, for is it, three months, it's now it's really beginning operations. Uh, it's real science work. They're going to have a preliminary press conference this week, giving us the uh, an update of their first science result. Its biggest result so far, however, has been an engineering achievement, and that's its Ingenuity helicopter. It has demonstrated that we can fly on Mars. Aviation in that thin atmosphere is possible, and it was so successful that rather than just simply be a 30-day engineering test, it turned out to be a permanent now operational scout for Perseverance. They're using it on that, in that extent. Now, it's, it can't do scouting, great scouting work, because it wasn't designed to actually be a scout. It but it's still pretty good. It's designed to be an engineering test, but they're learning how to use a helicopter to do scouting for future missions. This is spectacular. And then the third rover on Mars is China's first rover, Zhurong. It's been on Mars since mid-May. It's now moved about 1,500 feet from its lander. I just posted a few days ago images they released uh, earlier this week um, uh, of its most recent images. It, it actually has tra- it traveled about 1,000 feet to its parachute and heat shield. Not heat shield, I'm sorry, uh, uh, fairing cover, essentially, and it took pictures of that. Um, they're very tight-lipped about what it's doing, so it's a little hard to say. I do know what its scientific goals are, and its prime scientific goal is to see if there is water under the surface at that location. They're in the equatorial regions where you would not expect to find water. If they find water underground with their, pe- their radar-penetrating uh, instrument, that will be a major discovery, and it will be significant for future conversations. Didn't Perseverance just report back to NASA that there may have been signs of past life, some kind of evidence? Uh, I have not heard that. Uh, that might be uh, something that's good that was reported uh, later today that I haven't checked yeah, About on. 12 hours ago. Yeah, and I think those kind of reports don't get me particularly excited. I can't tell you the number of ca- uh, stories I've read where they say, we may have found evidence of this, and that's not really very significant. What... It, it, one of the things NASA has done with Perseverance that is really a distortion of its mission is they have sold it as a search for life, and that is totally incorrect. It's great press. The modern press that is very ignorant about Mars eats it up, but it's not what Perseverance is doing. Perseverance is doing the same thing Curiosity is and Zhurong is doing. They are trying to understand the geology of Mars at the particular locations they are at. They are exploring Mars at those locations and trying to understand its geology. 
understanding its geology both now and its history, historical geology will tell us a great deal about the planet itself and whether it could have once had life. The odds of them finding evidence of actual life on the planet is almost nil. Of course, if they find it, that's great. They're not, they want to find it, that's great. But that's really not the focus. The focus is to try to figure out what that planet is like now and what, it, what made it what it looks like today in the past. And there's a lot of mysteries about Mars. We really do not understand what it's like. But we do are beginning, we are beginning to understand something about Mars that was never really understood in the past, which is that the planet is not a dry desert planet. This is another misconception people have. They are learning with the orbiters and the rovers and the landers that Mars is actually more like Antarctica. It's a, hmm. a wet, icy um, uh, dry, icy place. So you don't have liquid water, so it's very dry. Antarctica's a desert, but it's got ice everywhere. I, I'm behind the black. I've got some posts. I've got a map. You can actually see from 30 degrees latitude north and south, going north, pretty much wherever you go, you're going to find ice. You're going to find it near the surface. You're going to find lots of glacial material in 30 to 60 degree latitudes. Lots of really easily accessible ice. And so that's, that's Mars. Mars is not a dry planet, but it's a planet made of ice, which you then have to process. So when the colonists get there, the way they'll get their water is a mining operation. They will dig down and mine out the ice and then process it for drinking or for energy. Or maybe fuel. And fuel, energy. You, you, they will process it for the hydrogen and oxygen. They'll process for the oxygen to breathe, and they will process it for the water. And, it, you know, and it's everywhere. Any, any time you, any place you pick north of, a, I'm sorry, closer to the pole above 30 latitude, you're almost certainly going to land in a place where you have easy, easily accessible ice. That is what they're learning. And that's, that's, that's why Zhirong's mission is so significant. Because it's at 24 degrees latitude, so it's farther south than those lines. And if they find underground water there, then it suggests that anywhere on the surface, you merely have to dig down to get water. That's a big deal. It is. 31 years ago, the Hubble Space Telescope was launched. It died, but they rebooted it, and it's working again. Yes. I wrote my, you know, I, some people tell me I wrote the book, The History of Hubble, of Universe, Universe and Amira. Uh, it is the telescope, I like to say, that it cannot be killed. Every, every decade. 31 years, along, Robert. That's amazing. Shut it down, and it never dies. However, we must, I must to stick a pin in the balloon of the success there. Yes, it was down for a month. It had a computer hardware problem. They figured it out. They switched to the correct hardware backup on the telescope. It resumed science operations just a few days ago. But here's the caveat. The downside or the, the caveat? The downside, and uh, it's a big downside. Uh -oh. there, are, there is no redundancy left. They used the backup computer on the modules to get it going again. But that means they don't have a backup anymore for those modules. And in fact, throughout the telescope, increasingly, they have no backups. They have no backups for the gyroscopes to keep it pointed. They have no backups any longer for the computer. And they used to send astronauts from the space shuttle Can't up do there, that anymore. right? Can't do no, that. No, we don't have it the, anymore. The telescope has a grapple attachment on it, and it is possible... It's, and they even considered a robotic mission when they had, the shuttle was grounded after the Columbia accident. Uh, it is possible to still do a repair mission to Hubble because it's designed to be 
repaired. And in fact, the computer that failed was a unit that was put in during the last maintenance mission in 09. So you could put a new one in, but you, that we do not right now have any spacecraft with the capability of docking with Hubble and doing such a mission. Will we have that capability? The resurgence of manned spaceflight privately that's going on right now suggests that within five years, we're going to have that capability all over again. And it will be possible to mount a mission to repair Hubble. So I have my fingers crossed that this telescope will hold on for at least five more years, because if it can do that, we will be at a point where we could say, hey, for not too much money, we can engineer a mission manned or possibly robotic to the telescope to fix the problem. Do we need it fixed once the James Webb telescope goes up in another James several Webb months? James Webb telescope is not a replacement for Hubble. This is, a, this is a lie NASA has told for, for, for 30 years. The James Webb telescope is a cutting-edge infrared telescope. It observes only in the infrared. It is not an optical telescope. It is designed, it is optimized for doing cosmology. It can do other kinds of things, but it's designed to do cosmology, deep space observation. So it's not going to give us that awe-inspiring look that we get with Hubble? No, it'll give us infrared images that will be spectacular and awe-inspiring, but they will not be what our eyes see, and Hubble can do that. They will not be working at optical uh, wavelengths. I will tell you that the Chinese, in building their space station that's being assembled right now, they plan to launch an, uh, a Hubble-class optical telescope uh, possibly slightly better than Hubble. It's under construction right now, and that is going to fly near their space station with the concept that their space station um, occupants will be able to go to that telescope periodically and maintain it. And so they, if Hubble dies, they, we, might, we will not be blind in optical wavelengths because the Chinese will provide it. Of course, they're not going to let us use it. They're going to keep it for themselves. But um, uh, that's where we stand, at least. We've done some shows, many shows, Robert. We're concerned about uh, a couple things, but one includes an X-flare from the sun, which, if it hits us directly, could literally wipe out all our electronics. Tell us about the real dangers of that. I, I think they're entirely overrated. Really? <laughs> I see what you wanted to hear, but they, I think they're really... I hope you're right. Um, there, there's no question that uh, an ex, a really powerful flare from the sun can and has caused blackouts on Earth. It had did it back in, I think, 69. Um, but in the 40, 30, 40 years... So you wouldn't spend the money, happened. though, to insulate the power grid? The power grid, the people who run the power grid have been very aware of the risk and have worked very hard to protect the power grid. Now, it doesn't mean it's not an issue, but it's not, it's not a death-defying, we're all going to die situation. On top of that, the sun itself has been relatively inactive for the last 20 years. So far. The threat is even more reduced from that, in that respect. So, no, I'm not really particularly worried about the sun, a solar flare hurting us. I'm more concerned that the sun might be uh, inactive and uh, cause uh, global cooling, which it seems to have done for the last uh, uh, two decades. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.